you've heard them. We agree on certain things. We disagree on certain things. I'm sure you've heard sermons that I have taught on different passages that I've taught on that were taught completely differently. Different perspectives. Even different doctrines of non-essentials, hopefully. And so there is this whole idea that Paul was very clear in expressing when he tells us to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. And because it is God who works in you, both to do and to will for his good pleasure. And, and so we are always a work in progress. We always have been a work in progress. We always will be a work in progress. And there are a lot of competing doctrines out there. And again, when I, I'm talking about non-essentials. Non-essentials of the faith. As opposed to essentials of the faith. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The inspiration, in my mind, the inspiration of the Bible is an essential. I believe the Trinity, although it is difficult to explain, it is difficult to understand, but the divinity of Christ, which is wrapped around the theology of the Trinity, is an essential. Um, the fact that man is sinful and cannot earn his way to heaven is an essential of the faith. A lot of this other stuff, quite frankly, is up for grabs. I wrote that in the paper to my, one of my professors that, well, we'll see what kind of grade I get. And he's a, it's a theology class that we're taking. It's a fun class anyway. Um, and we are still constantly refining. And part, that is part of what we are looking at here. Just part of what we are looking at here. There are, there are people here. There's the crowds. There's the crowds who do not know the law and they're accursed. At least that's what the chief priests and the Pharisees said about them. Those guys don't know the Bible. They're accursed. There's a guy named Nicodemus who went to Jesus. He was the first Nick at night, right? Okay. He went to Jesus at night. John chapter 3, that wonderful passage in this gospel was preempted, if you will, because God has spoken to the heart of Nicodemus and he became hungry, he became thirsty. We see later that he's one of the ones who, who, who uh, takes Jesus down from the cross. I believe he is a believer. And then there are the chief priests and some of the Pharisees who do not believe. There's different players. And there's different ideas. Some people thought he was the prophet. They're, they're asking that question. Is, is this guy, he, he said, if anyone comes to me, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and, 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 and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, did he say anything else beside that at that event? 
We don't know. I tend to think that he probably didn't. I can't prove it. But you can't prove I'm wrong either. So there you go. All right, we got another stalemate going. But because I tend to think that if he would have said anything else besides what we have recorded in verse 37 and in verse 38 of this chapter, it would have been put that the Holy Spirit would have inspired John to write it rather than give the commentary that we have in verse 39. It's not completely clear without John's commentary. So it's leaving people to wonder. It's leaving people to guess. It's leaving people to either begin to pursue a greater understanding because let's, let's face it, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Ephesians chapter 2. But we have to have at least some type of knowledge to put our faith into. Is that correct? I don't think we have to have a whole lot of knowledge, particularly with, with, with people that I know, uh, myself included, uh, who became a Christian very early in life. I didn't understand a whole lot about the Bible. And, but I knew Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so saying it almost every Sunday. And then Jesus loves little children. That was the other one we did, right? Um, but there, to me, there is not a whole lot of things we need to understand about Jesus, about God, about sin, that we need to understand in order to be saved. Now, we need to have a cursory understanding. But as I have told you guys before, we are not going to take an entrance exam a theological entrance exam to get into heaven. And I think that's really a good thing because I think we'd all have trouble passing it, to be honest with you. Which I should have written in my paper, but I did already push the envelope enough as it was. Although he's a good teacher. Some thought he was the prophet. Referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, we won't take the time to look at it. They thought that also with John the Baptist, way back in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. When they were asking him, who are you? And it's interesting because in that portion of Deuteronomy, you have these various functions uh, and, and positions of, of government and, and society within Israel. You have judges and you have kings. Uh, judges in verse chapter 16, kings in chapter 17, priests in chapter 18, and then prophets. But this prophet that Moses talked about, he said, a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up. A prophet like Moses. Now, it was understood to some degree later that Moses was prophesying about the Messiah. But back then, they did not always differentiate between the prophet that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 18 and the Messiah. 
First uh, Maccabees, uh, chapters 4, and then chapter 14. Maccabees is not inspired, in my opinion. Some people's mileage on that may vary. But I think it's a useful book because it's written in, during the Maccabean period uh, after the Old Testament was written. It's good for history, but it's also good to take a look at the, uh, it's a way of taking the temperature of the sp spiritual climate of Israel during that time. And what they believed theologically, what they believed doctrinally. All right, so to me, in that regard, it is valuable. And it, it talked about the coming of a prophet um, who would come and solve all the legal profit, uh, problems in Israel. Matter of fact, in, in Qumran, uh, which is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you had what was called an Essene community. They were ascetics. They were monastics. Um, and they, uh, they preserved a lot of the Old Testament for us. Um, and they were told in the writings to cling to the Torah and the ancient laws of community until the prophet comes, which was presumed to be the prophet like Moses. All right. There was also an understanding of that prophet being messianic. But it was not always widespread. Not every Jew believed this. You, you, you have to understand that. Right? I mean, it, it, during the time of Jesus, there were several different ideas doctrinally on how the Old Testament scriptures, or the Hebrew scriptures, if you want to call them, were interpreted. All right? But some thought that he might have been the prophet. Then others said, well, he's not the prophet. He's the Christ. Uh, after Judah came back from captivity, they went into captivity right around 586 B.C. Actually, it was a very long, drawn-out captivity that probably began around 605 B.C., but I'm not going to get into that this morning. But after Judah came back from captivity, they no longer had a king, so the emphasis was, was upon the priest, but it was also became a greater emphasis upon the coming Messiah. And, and you, you, even, you see that with, with Jeremiah who wrote during the time of the exile. Uh, and you also see that in Ezekiel who writes after the exile actually. And... Uh, and they understood that the Messiah would have this, this combination uh, of traits of royalty and a priestly function. That's how they began to interpret this understanding of the Messiah, that he would be a royal person, a king, and also a priest. They weren't understanding that he would also be the third one, which is what? A prophet. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is priest, king, and prophet. Um, but he's also, again, the prophet like Moses. Moses, I believe, was prophesying about Jesus. They didn't always combine the two. And they had some, the Jews during that time, they had some really strange doctrines. They also, they had a doctrine of two messiahs. Now, not every Jew believes this either, okay? This is, these are different sects. 
But there was <clears throat> their Messiah, Ben Joseph, who was the suffering servant of Isaiah. And the Messiah, Ben David, son of, Ben means son of, the Messiah, Ben David, who was the conquering king. Both of those descriptions are given to us in the Old Testament. Some of them did not understand that they're talking about one and the same person. Which necessitated a first coming and a second coming that we have not yet seen of the Messiah. So the Messiah is coming again. When? I have no idea. It is not for me to know the day or the hour. I know some of you take a different view on that, and that's fine. But when people are partly right, they're also partly wrong. And so there's this striving to try to gain better understanding. And so what really interests me is these officers, temple guards, Temple cops, how's that, all right? They had been sent, remember they're earlier in the chapter? They had been sent to go arrest Jesus. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, and yet no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So these guys, they go back to the chief priest and the Pharisees empty-handed. Tells us in verse 45, uh, in verse 44, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. It was not yet his timing. To me, that is talking about a supernatural prevention. That'll be one of the classes I'm going to want to take when I'm in heaven. Tell me more about that. I'm interested. And the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 45, and they said that, and the chief priests and Pharisees said to him, why did you not bring him? They were expecting to arrest Jesus here in the Feast of Tabernacles. Which, by the way, is coming up shortly. I think we go into Rosh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, and then we go, well, depending on your calendar, I think that was yesterday, and today we're in the Day of Atonement. So, what I find fascinating is the officer's answer in verse 46, never has a man spoken in this way. Never has a man spoken like this. That was their excuse for not arresting him. That was their excuse for disobeying, some of you are in the military, disobeying a direct order. They were told to go do this. They could have faced some pretty strong consequences. But what they are saying is, I have never heard anyone speak this way. They were so captivated by him, by what he had to say, that they were willing to disobey the orders. And they just kind of come back and say, okay, we're back. Where's Jesus? Well, he really, I've never heard anybody speak like this. 
What are they talking about? Well, I think verse 37, 38, even verse 36, 34, right? They got to hear all of that. Was it his content? That which he said? If anyone thirsts, come to me. I think so. I think it was his content. Or was it also in the way that he said it? Now, if I said, hi, Phil, right, is much different than, hi, Phil, <laughs> right? You like the first one. The first, second one wasn't quite so inviting, was it? Personal. But that only is part of it, I think. Remember, he cried out. I'm not going to demonstrate. Okay, but he cried out very loudly, it tells us. Jesus stood and cried out, verse 37. Or was there something more? Now, I think it was the content. I think it was the fact that he cried out. But I do think it was also something more. This may have been the very first time in these guys' lives that they really heard with spiritual ears. I don't know. But they got... Well, think about this. Boy, I wish I was there. They got to hear... One day we'll hear this, right? But they got to hear God in the flesh speak to them and say to them, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. That in itself is powerful enough. But I would submit to you also then the Holy Spirit taking that and, and breathing. This is inspired scripture, right? They heard inspired scripture for the very first time. God breathed, God inspired, breathing that into their hearts. They heard with their ears, they heard with their mind. They also, I believe, heard with their hearts. And all they could do, because they're still processing, I believe, still trying to figure some of this out. Is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? Who is this guy? I don't know, but let's just tell the Pharisees, oh, we don't know what to do with him. <clears throat> that was their job, to go arrest people, to be guards. They were cops, right? That's what they were trained to do. But they get in the presence of Jesus. And they cannot do the bidding for the Pharisees. Also because it was not his time. His time had not yet come. All right? So when you think about this, the Holy Spirit is all over this scenario. And so I thought the Pharisees and the chief priest's response was telling. Because they asked, you've not been led astray, have you? 
they probably had been led astray for the entire time that they were working as the officers of the temple. Because the, if I can use the word, religious system of that day had been completely corrupted. And it was, it served the chief priest well. It served the Pharisees well in many respects. And it says not one of the rulers of the Pharisees that believed in him has he. Of course, it's interesting because they bring up Nicodemus, and Nicodemus obviously is being convicted by the Holy Spirit and beginning to start to think these things through. But it goes on to say, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I've been around Christians, and they claim to be Christians, and I believe that they are Christians. But I've been around some of them, and they, they, like, they like this idea of sending people to hell. Because I've heard it out of their mouth from time to time, or sometimes over and over. That's above your pay grade. That's way above your pay grade. And the reality is, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of sound theological thinking, sound theological doctrine, although, yes, we do need to understand some things to be saved. I don't think salvation happens in a vacuum. I'm more of a free will guy in that regard. The Holy Spirit, think about this, the Holy Spirit taking his time to minister and to speak and to give each one of you personal understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Not only for you to become saved, but to continue to grow you in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this crowd, they don't know the law, according to the Pharisees. And I thought that's interesting because where, what's going on here? They're in Jerusalem. This is at the Feast of Tabernacles, which every male was supposed to be there. So obviously they knew something about the law, did they not? This is called whitewashing or broad brushing. Making these blanket statements about them. Ah, they're going to hell anyway. So we're not worried about them. They're, they're, they're just a bunch of heathens. They don't understand the Bible like I understand the Bible, so they must be going to hell. It is not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And when I hear a Christian reveling in the idea of people going to hell, it concerns me. In fact, there have been a few times that I've wanted to say, and maybe you're going to join them. But I kept quiet. Maybe I shouldn't have. Spiritually speaking, within the realm of Christendom, even within the realm of Judaism, that's the worst thing you can do to someone. Is, 
oh, you're going to go to hell anyway, so why does it matter? You don't understand the law. You're, you're just ignorant, and, and, and you're cursed. I find that really fascinating. Because I haven't dug deeply enough into this idea of someone being accursed in, in, in Jewish context, in Hebrew context, in, in, in the understanding of the Jewish faith about someone being accursed. But there's some similarities that some groups who take the idea of God's sovereignty to such an extreme that we don't have a choice, which absolutely makes no sense to me. But our mileages sometimes vary, do they not? But what you had here was a class-oriented, a class-focused faith. Those who heard the Spirit were the crowds, the officers. Those who either did not hear the Spirit or decided to reject the voice of the Spirit were the priests and the Pharisees. And they were the religious people. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? What they're doing is they're appealing to a greater authority. What they are implying is that these dumb, ignorant hillbillies don't even know the law. They're accursed, and they can't, they can't have a relationship with God unless they, they do it through us, through our teaching, through us explaining to them the things of the law. That's what they're saying. It's an appeal to a greater authority. But what is an authority? See, the Pharisees trusted in their works. They trusted in their knowledge. And how much do good works factor into our faith? I would refer you to the book of James. You say you have works, I say I have faith. You say you have faith, I say I have works. I will show you my faith by my works. So there's, there's, there's always a, it, I would say a delicate balance, but I don't even like that term. Well, I do and I don't, okay? Maybe next week I'll like it again. Because what I have found, now, now I believe that once we pray to receive Christ that we're saved, okay? That's my belief. But what I have found at times, biblically, just when I think I've got something figured out, eventually I realize I don't. And sometimes it makes it very hard to teach some of these passages because I look at it and I go, I don't know, you know. Okay, well, I, I need to spend some time with it. Give you my best impressions of what I believe is going on here in the passage. In Matthew 23, we won't take the time to turn here, but I've got a couple of them printed in front of me. Jesus is taking the scribes and the Pharisees to task. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 3, it says, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that is, whatever the Pharisees and the chief priests and scribes tell you to observe, that observe and do. So that tells me that their teaching was somewhat sound. 
Whatever they tell you to do, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. I've known pastors that get up every Sunday morning and preach a really good sermon and then they go live like the theological place of eternal punishment, right? Treat their staff horribly. Cheat on their wives. Steal money from the church. And still holding the position of pastor, by the way. And Jesus takes that type of behavior to task. Rough. He, he's, he's rougher on them in Matthew 23 than he is on any other group in the Gospels. He then tells them, 10 verses later, Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you yourselves neither go in, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's exactly what's happening here in John 7. You have these folks that are entering in to the kingdom. They're being touched by the voice of the Holy Spirit who is taking that which Jesus says and, and, and bearing witness. And of course, I, obviously Jesus is involved in all this. When we see a, a, a movement of one person of the member of the Trinity. I believe that's all three involved. Okay. But they are, they are being awakened. They are starting to believe. And you have the Pharisees say, they don't understand the law. They're accursed. Meanwhile, they're living off the fat. They're living off the fat of the people. Again, this fascinates me that even though they said that they were cursed, that here they are at tabernacles wanting to have this relationship with God, wanting to be obedient, wanting, wanting I think, wanting to hear from God. And Nicodemus then speaks up and says, our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? It's a good question. Because what was going on is they were playing judge, jury, and executioner. I think that's what Nicodemus is picking up on here in this conversation, although it's not completely described in that way. But why else would Nicodemus respond in the way that he did here? That was right after the Pharisees say, chief priests say, that the, law, that the crowd does not know the law and they're accursed. Well, if you want to talk about the law, we don't judge someone without hearing it out first. And they answered, verse 52, and said to him, you are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures. Study the scriptures. And see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Were they right? Technically, yes. They were right. 
See, that's the problem. What they did not recognize, they did not understand, they may not even have known that Jesus was not originally from the Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy in Micah. And then going to Egypt, fulfilling, I believe, top of my head, so I could get this wrong, I believe it's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. It's recorded for us in, in the book of Matthew. No, the prophet, the Messiah, no prophet arises out of Galilee. See, they don't even, they don't even, they're not even sure who they're dealing with here yet. And, and the language in the Greek could give some room to where it says no prophet arises out of Galilee. It could be referring back to the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, but that's, that's a big maybe, okay? But no prophet arises out of Galilee. But there was one out of Bethlehem that they didn't know about. You see, we can go to the scriptures so that the Holy Spirit softens our hearts. And we submit ourselves to that which God has declared in his inspired word. Or we can go to the scriptures thinking that we have them submitted to our thinking and our interpretations. Are we submitted to that which God has written in his word or are we trying to to oversee and control that which God has written in his word. These are really, to me, very, very important questions. And I see folks try to do this with non-essential doctrines. I'm sure I have been guilty of it myself. Maybe some of you might have been. No, not this group. My last church, of course, right? Paul tells the Corinthians we know in part. See in part, we prophesy in part. Eventually, we will know as we are known. I think he's talking about when we are in heaven. And, when we, it, and even then, when? Right at, right at the moment you arrive in heaven or after we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. I don't know. But until then, and this is subjective, and this is, this, I could go on for about another 10 minutes, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be done. I'm going to be quiet. Listen for the still small voice. Listen for the still small voice that is consistent with what he has written what he has breathed, what he has inspired. Listen to the still small voice that is consistent with what the church has understood the inspired word of God to say. We know in part, we prophesy in part. 
But one day we will know as we are known. Until then, we thank God for his grace. And hopefully, we receive and extend that type of grace to others when we believe that they're not right. But in reality, it might be that they are and you're not. So there you go, right? So they all went to their house. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives. And next week, we'll look at the story of this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, apparently all by herself. It's going to be a good chapter. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we... We confess of how much it is that we need you. We need you to come alongside of us, to to give us understanding. And Lord, when that understanding is partial, help us to be confident that you who began a good work in us would be faithful and will be faithful to complete that until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf that he did on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for each of us. And Lord, we are so thankful for that because we are so in need of that. We thank you, Lord, too, that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death until you come. And so, Lord, we look forward to your second coming for you to come and to be the conquering king and to rule and reign on the throne of David on Mount Zion.